Song number 37 was selected as one we'll use at the close of the lesson this evening. And after marking that, might I bring us to the realization that we'll continue our consideration of some of the translations of the Scriptures this evening. Through the first four lessons of our series, we first of all have attempted to look somewhat more interestingly at the nature of translations on the whole. We did that by beginning to help us appreciate the need for such. Most of us are unable to read the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, and so we stand in a very critical need for a reliable and trustworthy translation of the Holy Scriptures. We also learned along that pathway that it's a rather sad thing to notice that some translations have gone awry. That is to say that those who were responsible for the translation have in fact used a methodology that you and I would consider problematic. They have in fact attempted to interpret where they have inserted their own thinking and their own ideas and their own theology in place of, in fact, what God Himself declared through the revealed Word. As you'll notice, particularly, we've noted the unreliability of several translations. To quickly note what they were, the so-called Good News Bible we found to be very problematic. The so-called Cotton Patch Bible as well was not one we would recommend. Last week, we looked at the Living Bible Paraphrased and its successor, the New Living Translation. And we also noted the New English Bible as well as its successor, the Revised English Bible. All of which we noted by explicit example, by considering some passages, some difficulties surrounding the methodology used in them. Tonight, perhaps we should give thought to these two listed there at the very bottom. First, the Amplified Bible and also the Revised, the revised Standard Version of the Bible we shall also consider during the course of our lesson tonight. All the while, perhaps it would be fair to note that, of course, there have been hundreds of translations of the Scriptures, and we will not look in detail at each and every one of them. We would be unable to do that within even a year's period of time. Our goal, of course, is to notice a few of the ones that have certainly had a great impact upon the human family. Not only these that have been listed, but also the two tonight will fall also in that category. And so, first of all, might we give some thought to the Amplified Bible? Perhaps we should notice along the way some of the features concerning this particular Bible and also, as we have done in the past, some of the verses actually found in it and note some of the difficulties that might be found surrounding it. First of all, this particular Bible, the Amplified Bible, is one that has a rather wide acceptance in the sense that it was overwhelmingly encouraged and admonished by some very prominent preachers in days gone by. I say prominent preachers not as if we should perhaps recognize them as Church of Christ proclaimers of the truth, but rather those nonetheless who were very famous, and hence the circulation of the Amplified Bible became to be rather large. It was produced by the Lockman Foundation, and the New Testament was set forth in 1958. It was, however, some seven years later the Old Testament was completed, and so the entire Bible in the Amplified Version was set forth in 1965. As the name would suggest, the particular methodology and idea behind the Amplified Bible was this. In the estimation of those who were its editors and those that were the committee who set it forth, they, in looking at the original texts, 
when they came across a particular passage that in their view was somewhat difficult to understand or at least in their estimation could be improved upon in terms of its presentation, they would take the liberty to amplify on that passage and so-called explain it. And I think you'll see in just a moment that they did that quite a bit. For the Amplified Bible was a bit lengthy in many ways. In fact, as you come to one of the first things, let's notice Ephesians 5.19 in the so-called Amplified Bible. We will remember that in the King James translation, for example, this passage reads, "...speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." I would invite your attention to how it is rendered in the so-called Amplified Bible. Speak out to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering praise with voice and instruments, making melody with all your heart to the Lord. And as you can notice, there is that little passage or phrase that they have placed in parenthesis. And I would already invite you to notice their explanation of what those words in fact mean. If you'll already go to the bottom, it says the words and instruments which I placed in italics were in brackets initially and here was the description for any words or phrases that occurred in brackets in that original Amplified Bible. The brackets contain, may I emphasize, justified, clarifying words or comments not actually expressed in the immediate text. In other words, the individuals who were involved in the translation admitted the words were not in the original text, but they deemed them justified and in fact essential for clarifying what was meant in the original text. To say that differently, they have put in what they thought God meant. Now we've noted already in previous studies that it is in fact not within the human responsibility to speak on behalf of God unless we have a thus saith the Lord for that. And these individuals again clearly put in the matter of instrumental music and mechanical at that and did so without any apology, asserting that it was justified in so doing. And not only that, it was needed to clarify what was meant in the text. That is but a sampling of what one will frequently encounter in the Amplified Bible. On this occasion in Ephesians 5.19, you'll notice it was a corruption of the music as it appears in Christian worship. Let's look at another example also from the Amplified Bible. First of all, as we give notice to any occurrence of things like this, is clearly recognized as a sinful activity and a sinful means of operation. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 as well as Deuteronomy 12 32, God said, Ye shall not add unto the word that I have given you, neither ye shall ye subtract therefrom, but ye shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. As you give thought to that rendition or the associated one, observe to keep all that I command you. You shall not add thereto, you shall not subtract from it. In Revelation 22 verses 18 and 19, Again, emphasizing, even as it was in the case of the prophecy of John, the character of that book of Revelation, you're not add to anything that, of course, occurs within it, nor are you to subtract from it. For if you add to it, you will find that to you shall be added the plagues revealed in this book. If you subtract from it, your name subtracted from the book of life. 
Either way, an exceedingly dangerous and eternal order as one would find oneself separated from God. But notice something else that, are, that the authors of this Amplified Bible did on several occasions. Let's give some thought to what they did concerning repentance and baptism, for example. I indeed baptize you in or with water because of repentance, that is, because of your changing your minds for the better, heartily amending your ways with abhorrence of your past sins. Here's one of the passages thus to be found in the New Testament. You can immediately notice that they've attempted to define what repentance is. And of course, all of that was an insertion by its very character and nature. But I would bring to our attention one more problematic matter in all of that is a tiny little three-letter Greek word, ace, E-I-S. And I've actually written it at the end of that, of that particular quoted passage. You'll notice that in this, they translated ace as because of. Because of repentance, the translators wrote. But however, isn't it interesting that that word in Greek never means because of, never. It always, in fact, rather than looking retrospectively, it looks prospectively unto the completion of the thing. And with that said, notice as we go back to Acts 2.38, in a more reliable rendition, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, if we notice that passage, the word ace is located in it, and you'll notice that you and I just appreciated it translated for. Notice how the meaning of that has changed if you read it because of. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To change that to because of completely changes the thrust, impetus, and motivation for that passage. It in essence is now saying because your sins have already been forgiven, now you can be baptized. Notice how that completely changes the placement of baptism, the placement of repentance, the reason for doing so, and the act which in fact those things bring about. It is a dangerous philosophy to in fact shed some additional light on the usage of the word ace, might I invite us to consider Matthew 26 verse 28. For it also appears in that passage, on this occasion the Lord was still living. This was that particular scene in which He was in fact instituting the Lord's Supper. And it was on that occasion, again the night before His death the following day, that in fact he said, This is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of sins. I would now ask you to notice, ace is employed in that passage. It is literally the Greek preposition that is employed. Now let's change that to because of and see if it makes any sense. Again, the Lord would be saying, If it meant because of. This is my blood which is shed for many because of the remission of sins we can now see the utter illogical character of that. The Lord hadn't shed His blood yet. And yet, He will on that occasion, apparently, if it means because of, would thus be saying that in fact this blood or this uh, fruit of the vine representative of my blood is now shed because your sins have already been forgiven? Well, the Lord would have had no need to die if that were the case. 
we can see the problem that accords with using a says it means because of. It does not mean because of. And so our translators of the Amplified Bible have misled countless precious souls by asserting that ace, for instance, was translated as because of. Can we perhaps give some thought, though our considerations have been somewhat brief, that the Amplified Bible, despite the enormous popularity it enjoyed, is nonetheless not a reliable and not a trustworthy rendition or translation of the Holy Scriptures. We should thus not use it ourselves, nor should we encourage others to use it, but rather to help them see the difficulties and problems with the translations and the philosophy of those who employed it. But what about yet another translation of the Holy Scriptures besides the Amplified Bible? Let's turn our attention to the Revised Standard Version, the so-called RSV. This one is by far the most popular one that we have considered so far in the series. And thus, perhaps a more lengthy consideration of it shall be given. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible, first of all, is exceedingly popular. And when it was completed in 1946, it was an overwhelmingly modern and up-to-date translation. Many, as it were, lined up to give their stamp of approval to the so-called RSV. And in the many revisions that have been noted since, it still enjoys a rather wide usage and a rather wide popularity. I would ask you to notice, first of all, one of the statements found in the preface. That is to say, the opening comments of the Revised Standard Version. It is a rather telling statement. It simply reads, and I quote, And we cannot be content with the versions of 1881 and 1901 for two main reasons. One is that these are mechanically exact, word-for-word -word translations which follow the order of the Greek word so far as this is possible. In other words, the gentleman who served on the committee that actually put into publication the Revised Standard Version listed this as one of their reasons for engaging in this effort and one of the reasons for putting this forth. And notice again their reason. First of all, these two translations to which they refer, 1881 and 1901, they claim to be word-for-word -word mechanically exact translations and they follow as nearly as the order can be done the original Greek text. These gentlemen said, that will not do. We don't want a translation like that. And hence, they put out this other one. That should immediately present a red flag to all of us that something may be amiss with regard to the RSV. Something may not be quite right because apparently if they weren't satisfied with a word-for-word, -word, mechanically exact translation of the original Hebrew and Greek, what did they do to the text? They apparently did not want a mechanically exact one, and they did not want a word-for-word -word translation. It is with that preface in mind that perhaps we can come to Romans 11 verse 20. And notice what in fact is the case relative to their presentation on the subject of salvation by faith. The rendition in which you and I could read it as the RSV translates that verse as follows. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Romans 11 verse 20. Again in the RSV. 
I would ask you to notice that that thing which seems to immediately capture our attention is certainly their employment of the word only. As if to say that one, of course, is saved only through some matter of mental belief, if you please, without any additional, any other, or anything else that might be asserted. Now, if you read this in the King James translation, for example, you'll notice that it simply reads, Thou standest with faith, or in faith. There is no word only, no word alone, nothing that would indicate that that was in the original Greek, and in fact it isn't. These gentlemen, or this committee, I should say, has inserted that because in their view, again, they weren't concerned with mechanically word-for-word presentation. They inserted this word as if to assist in presenting what they thought the text taught or what they perceived was the teaching on that occasion. We immediately notice that this then would not be what that passage directly taught. They've inserted something. And it was just as dangerous here as when Martin Luther inserted in his famous rendition of Romans 3.28 back in the 1520s. But perhaps another thing that might be worthy of note from the RSV, and perhaps this, at least in my mind, has to be one of the most objectionable things that might be stated relative to any translation. I would invite you to turn to Mark the 16th chapter in your Bible. Because something that we, you and I should point out readily and easily and rather noteworthily is the following. Mark the 16th chapter, the closing chapter of the epistle, that book of Mark. As you read through that chapter, you'll notice that as you and I perceive it and read it, there are some 20 verses present. Those 20 verses, in fact, conclude by with the word Amen at the end of verse 20. But I would ask you to notice the way that the Revised Standard Version in 1946 presented that chapter. As you read through the chapter, in that rendition, the chapter closed at the end of verse 8. In other words, completely removed were verses 9 through 20. They did not appear in that rendition of the Holy Scriptures. All of those verses, and there's 162 words that they completely cut, completely removed, completely had outside of what was contained in the Word of God. I would ask you to note just a few of the comments that might be worthy of note. There are some rather precious ideas certainly within those 12 verses. You'll note one of which certainly is this. Mark's giving or Mark's rendition of the Great Commission is found in those verses. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That's found within those set of verses. You'll also notice not only the parts of that, but certainly one of the passages that speak to the elements involved in the plan of salvation. And as if that isn't enough, Many of the statements that help identify, explain, and set forth the matter of the miraculous efforts and work of the first century church is described in verses 17 and following. And the Revised Standard Version cut out all of it. I would ask you to notice just how objectionable, surely, one must appreciate that to be. Now, quite frankly, as you notice, we might pause to ask, upon what basis... 
Upon what reasoning and upon what approach did the committee have so that they thought it worthy and they deemed it appropriate to remove those 12 verses of the sacred text? First of all, we might state, there are two old manuscripts that do not have Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. They based the entirety of their removal of it on those two renditions, those two ancient manuscripts. But let's be quick to say, and I would ask you to note some things that should immediately be offered in defense of including these verses. First of all, there in fact are manuscripts even older than those two to which I just referred that do have these verses in it. So it's not the case that the oldest manuscripts do not have these verses. There just are some, but there are some ones even older that virtually go back to the very time of the apostles and these verses are present. In addition to that, I would ask you to notice that if one closes this chapter at the end of verse number 8, it seems as if one is placed in a very unusual and perhaps even unreasonable position. For after all, the whole basis and thrust of Mark's gospel account was to present to the Romans the nature, the power, the immediacy, and in fact, the straightway nature of God's power as expressed through Jesus. In fact, one of the key words, perhaps the key word in all the book of Mark is the word straightway. In Greek, it comes from the word that's translated also as immediately, and it occurs 42 times in the book. It's as if to emphasize to the Roman mind that when the Lord decided to do something, it happened immediately. There was no delay. And to the Roman Empire and to those that were of Roman background, that was a very overwhelming consideration. They were the Romans of the world. They were used to being those in command. Others did their bidding. When they gave a command, it was supposed to be followed immediately. And yet in Mark's gospel account, that same position is heralded for Jesus. When He did something, it happened immediately. Whether it was a healing, whether it was some other activity in His life, to the Roman that would have been impressive. It is with that in mind I would draw your attention to the last three words of verse 8 of Mark 16. If the book were to end, notice how it would end if that were the case. They were afraid. That would completely run counter to everything the previous 16 verses, the 16 chapters had attempted to present. Notice, throughout the book, the Lord hadn't been afraid of virtually anything. He had stilled storms, He had healed the sick, He had confronted the Jewish authorities, all of it illustrating the majesty and might of that which was the power of God through Him. And yet, to end the book by saying they were afraid... That would in fact demean the very thrust of all that Mark had set forth in the chapters before. It thus seems as if that would make no sense to end the book that way. In fact, you and I realize the book didn't end that way. The Revised Standard Committee did a terrible injustice by removing the last 12 verses of Mark chapter 16. Might I suggest to you that in their removal of those 12 verses... They called into question the basic thrust and nature of the entirety of the book. They tampered with the plan of salvation by removing Mark's accounting of it. And furthermore, they also removed the power of his presentation of the gospel commission. 
All the while, you can perhaps now notice that in some of those later renditions of the RSV, the translators did an about-face. They did, at least in part, reintroduce Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, but they typically set it off in parentheses, as if to say there's some question about this, as if to say it is not, in fact, completely trustworthy and reliable. Shame on them. To remove this is a tragedy. And it was, in fact, such a tragedy that you and I can begin to appreciate the force that was involved in its removal. Perhaps, furthermore, even aside from these two, let us give some thought to what the RSV did to some Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And sadly enough, some contradictions that they introduced. We each understand that so many times in the Old Testament... There are these beautiful prophecies that directly look down the stream of time to the coming of Jesus, to the work that He would undergo, to the kind of life that He would live, to in fact the greatness of redemption that would be available through Him, to the church that He would establish. All of that was in fact at least heralded in the days of the Old Testament. And you and I realize that that in fact serves so many purposes it helps authenticate not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. It helps, in fact, authenticate the Messiahship of Jesus. I wonder how these RSV translators handled the Messianic Old Testament prophecies. How did they look upon them? Since there are over 300 of them, we won't nearly look at all of them. But might we, in fact, take a look at just a few of them? Perhaps we can begin by looking at this passage in Genesis 22, verse number 18. We will recall that on this occasion, perhaps one of the three main texts in all the book of Genesis, as you look at the way it's rendered, let's say, in the King James translation, it says, as God spoke to Abraham, Through your seed all nations of the earth shall be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Highlighting the obedience of Abraham... This came directly after he was commanded to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And when God saw that he did it, precisely, just as surely as he'd been commanded, it was in the aftermath of that that God said, as we just noted, in light of your obedience, through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Look at how the RSV has rendered that passage. By your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be bless themselves. I would ask you to notice that what did they change? What is so significantly different? The King James had said, Through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, as if to directly affirm this blessing shall come through the agency of one outside themselves. It would be, of course, through the character of God's offering of grace to the human family. And yet the RSV has removed the greatness of Jesus Christ from this whole passage. They shall bless themselves. As if this is by human agency. As if it is by human thrust and motivation. Again, shame on them. They have taken the very character of the Son of God out of Genesis twenty-two eighteen. Perhaps you might notice in Galatians 3 verses 8 and 16 when Paul quoted that passage and identified it they now are in extreme contradiction with themselves. For they removed Jesus out of Genesis 22, 18, and yet Paul said in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 16, that that was talking about Jesus. 
Isn't it easy to see, by removing the Christ, they were woefully guilty of contradiction, then with not only the inspired Apostle Paul, but with the very granting of what God had given in His holy and divine will. You might notice in that, here are some other contradictions that are introduced in the RSV. I quote from Genesis, or rather from this location in the Old Testament. This is actually found in Genesis chapter 9. But it reads, Noah was the first tiller of the soil. I beg to differ. He was not the first tiller of the soil, despite the fact the RSV says that he was. Because in Genesis 3.22, we also recognize that on that occasion, as well as Genesis 4 verse 2, that both Adam and Cain were also called tillers of the soil. But yet the RSV says that Noah was the first one. Do we begin also to see the contradictions that they have introduced? It's a sadness, isn't it? You might also notice that in the later renditions of RSV, they have taken the liberty of trying to do something else. It became rather apparent, it would seem, to the RSV translation committee that the world is moving in a direction of gender neutrality. People don't want to see the New Testament and the Bible at large always referring to God in the masculine and to Christ in the masculine and to the Holy Spirit in the masculine. But rather, there's this desire to make it gender neutral so that women and any group per se would desire to feel that they were being spoken to and of in exactly the same way. And hence, the later renditions have striven to remove every translation out of all of those passages that would have a masculine thrust to it. There's, of course, but one problem with that. When God gave His Word in Greek and in Hebrew, He used the masculine reference with respect to Himself and with respect to the Holy Spirit and with respect to Christ Himself. And thus, to remove that is to remove a very critical part of and an essential aspect to the nature of the Word of God. It is to be noted that on many occasions those passages are thus changed so that they simply read without any reference to gender, be it male or female. It often uses the word one, O-N-E. That one may obey, not that he or that she, but just that one. I say that to also say that there are some other things that we might carefully note about this RSV as well. Perhaps you and I have already begun to notice that the RSV has tampered with the messianic prophecies of Jesus. And they did so by removing the nature of Genesis twenty-two eighteen. We might not be too surprised that they tampered with some of the other things about Jesus as well. Not the least of which is His virgin birth. I would ask you to notice interestingly the way that Isaiah 7 verse 14 reads in a reliable translation of the Bible. Going back to that particular passage, this was in a very difficult time in Israelite history. Ahaz was the king on the throne, and directly in the time of Ahaz, God through Isaiah gave a prophecy that read like this, Therefore thou shalt give a sign unto Ahaz, The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. That sounds so beautiful and so lovely and wonderful to you and me as we hear God again say through the prophet that the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son 
and without any question or doubt, that directly calls us to think about the birth of Jesus. But I would ask you to notice the way our RSV has rendered that passage. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. What did these translators change? We understand well that word virgin is the way I quoted the King James translation, but they changed it to read a young woman. Now we readily understand that young women give birth all the time. And there's nothing unusual about that. A young woman comes to know a man, they engage in that which allows children to be born, and she gives birth. There is nothing supernatural, nothing unorthodox, nothing unusual about that. The King James translators translated it very different. The Revised Standard Translation has removed the entirety of the virgin birth. They, in fact, completely took all of that out of the text, and they didn't do it just once. You may notice, in fact, again in Jeremiah 31, 22, another passage in the Old Testament. Notice how they rendered it. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman protects a man. That is not the way that verse reads in, say, a different translation. For instance, in the King James translation, that verse at the close of it reads, A woman shall compass a man, meaning she shall go around the activity or utility of a man and proceed to give birth. Two translations in the Old Testament, they have completely removed the virgin birth of Jesus. Now might we say they had no license for doing so. There were two words in Hebrew that could well be translated virgin, and they used neither one of them. One of them particularly had reference to the word Alma, but they chose not to use that word. That takes on an even greater significance when we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. For there, the inspired writer Matthew quotes from the Old Testament writer Isaiah, directly applies this to Jesus. And you and I know that Mary, of course, was a virgin. She had not known Joseph at the time she gave birth to Jesus. We understand she fulfilled this Old Testament messianic prophecy and how lovely and beautiful it was and how tragic it is that our Revised Standard Translators removed all the beauty out of that text that related to the virgin birth. We've already begun to see that it would seem the Revised Standard Translators had a real problem with Jesus. They've removed His virgin birth. They've removed the Messianic prophecies. Let's notice what else they did to Him. They even altered the nature of who He was. We might now begin to say, that it takes a great deal of audacity and a great deal of nerve to change the nature of the Son of God. But yet, that's what they tried to do. Notice this particular passage. It's perhaps one of the favorite, most well-known of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you give thought to the way that reads and compare it to John 3.16 say in the King James translation, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What word did they remove? What word did they not use at all? 
It is that word that serves as an adjective to the word son. His only begotten son, they completely remove that word altogether. I'd submit to you that that word plays a tremendous role in the appreciation of exactly the nature of the Christ as the begotten Son of God and what's more, the only begotten one. That word in Greek is monogenes. And as such, it is exceedingly vital in the full appreciation of the nature of the Christ. Not only in the nature of who He was at birth, but in the reality of His preexistence. All of it is vital and yet they've removed it. Shame on them. In the change to all these ways, we have certainly come, I think, to question or doubt the reliability of the RSV. As you can perhaps see at the bottom, the RSV is certainly accepted by most modern theologians. In fact, most of the theological schools wrap their arms of embrace around the RSV and openly proclaim it as a wonderful translation. I think in light of our study this evening, we perhaps would disagree. And I've tried to place it in language like this. It is not a trustworthy or reliable translation. It changes too many things about the Christ. It calls into question particularly so many of the Old Testament prophecies. And as such, that which it presents is not reliable as it reflects the original Word of God. It is in light of all of that that the following conclusion statements to our lesson tonight might well be in order. We've again reminded ourselves of the vital nature of translations, but how that they should be reliable, trustworthy. As such, we've learned that the Amplified Bible, as well as the RSV, do not fall into those categories. These Bibles, in fact, are unreliable and untrustworthy. They tamper with the Word of God, and their own translators admitted it, as you and I noted in the preface to that RSV earlier this evening. In Ezekiel 3 verse 4, Lucas read earlier that God told Ezekiel, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. These two translations tonight have not presented faithfully God's words. Men have tampered with God's Word and changed it. They've taken out words on occasion. They've added words on the other. Both things are wrong. Both things are in error and both things, in fact, change what God has revealed. We can be so thankful for, for reliable translations on which we can base our eternal salvation. And tonight, as you give thought to your standing before God... We are told in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Upon examination, where do you and I stand tonight? Have you faithfully complied with those matters that will allow you to be added to the Lord's body by Christ Himself? If you haven't attended to that in your life, why not tonight? You must hear the word of the Lord, Romans 10, 14. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of the sins in your life as heralded in Luke 13, 5. Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, verse 38. If we could be of assistance to you in light of accomplishing those tonight, we would be more than honored to do so. But if you have become a member of the Lord's body at some former time in life, but you perhaps have begun to stray away or have strayed away, don't remain in that lost condition, but come back to your first love. Second Peter 2 verses 18 to 22 still remind us, 
that you may well at this particular point be described as a dog that's turned again to its own vomit, a sow that was washed who were wallowing in the mire. If we could bring you back and allow you to again be made clean through the blood of Jesus, we'd be honored to assist in that as well by praying for you. And if we could do either of those things tonight, why not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.